Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and today's episode is another in our ongoing series of conversations entitled Vine Stories. These episodes are designed to help us get to know some of the people at the Vine and hear their stories. Our guest today is Timothy Noble, and in this episode, Timothy shares some of the the journey of what is, in his own words, navigating deafness and identity in a hearing-centric world. Timothy talks about some of the challenges that he has faced as someone who is deaf, but who primarily communicates in spoken English. He talks about how he came to the decision to not communicate primarily with American Sign Language and the ways in which his choice has shaped not only his communication, but also his sense of self and belonging. Near the end of the discussion, we also sort of transition to how some of the concepts that Timothy talks about in relation to his deafness could also be applied to faith journeys as well, both for others who might relate to some of those things conceptually and for Timothy himself. And so with all of that as introduction, here's my conversation with Timothy. So uh, my life has been defined by my deafness. Like I, uh, I spent so long in my earlier childhood and, and teenage years, especially throughout high school, trying to be known not for my deafness but for something else. Um, it was like something I couldn't escape from. Um, the reality is I just simply couldn't hear people, and um, I've seen how people treat people with disability, and especially people with deaf, um, especially with my sister. My sister is also deaf. She, her hearing is a lot worse than mine. Um, she has cochlear implants now, and so, but I've seen how people treat the deaf community. They've been ostracized and just been um, treated as like somebody else, and I wanted so bad to not be known for that. Um, I just wanted to be seen as normal, and so, like even my high school years, I was trying to do other things to make myself be different because everybody's trying to be different in high school, that's their thing. Um, so I was like, I went through a weird emo phase at one point, um, tight black pants and weird colored hair. Um, that didn't last long. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I was, just, I was just trying to be whatever I could to just be different, but no matter what I could do, I couldn't escape it. I was still deaf. Um, and I was just really hard on just like even through my my 20s and my early adult years, which is really weird to say now I'm 35, but in my early adult years, it's like I just tried to, when I was, when I was in ministry, you know, I didn't want to be known as that guy who was deaf preaching or that guy doing a skit who was deaf. I just wanted to be known as the guy who was doing a skit and preaching really well. Um, but it was like no matter what, I come off the stage and people were like, oh, you articulate really well. Yeah, and it was just like everybody was noticing me that I was deaf, you know. And at some point, there was some kind of like pride that kind of come with it, you know. Um, uh, and I guess a little bit of gratitude that somebody would say that to overcome this adversity of some sort that I was deaf. But I never felt like that was any a hindrance to what I could do. I felt like I could just do it. Like it was a natural thing for me. And I feel like a lot of people have this thing toward deaf people or any kind of disability that this part is going to hinder them to succeed in whatever they want to do. I know a lot of deaf people have a problem with speaking, and so like early in my years, I would have a, I had a really bad speech impediment, 
So I did a lot of speech therapy in school, and I, I worked so hard. And it still comes out, but I worked so hard to prove that I didn't need that, that I could speak on a normal term with anybody else. Um, this is also a reason why I didn't learn sign language, uh, because I knew that sign language was seen as somebody, with a language seen as inferior to the English normal speaking language. Um, I don't know if some people might have that to any other kind of language in the United States, because I've seen people say that about people who speak Spanish. Speak English. You're in America now. Um, so I have that attitude that's always been seen in it. Uh, this language is inferior because you have, you're inferior to your disability, um, which is really unfortunate. But I've seen that, and I've reacted with that. Um, and so because of that, for all the longest time, I didn't know that. I mean, I know your basic sign language, like your alphabet and uh, cat, dog, and more, and milk, and random words here and there, but I couldn't kind of carry the conversation. Um, well, I would imagine it could feel sort of limiting to, to, to make the decision to speak in sign language. I would, I would imagine not only does, yeah, because when you're saying that, it does seem like it, it, I could see how it has a sort of a, an inferior connotation, but also I could see how it would, it would feel limiting, too, in terms of communication, yeah. probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. You know, um, and sign language, that's what I was like. I didn't want to be known as someone who did sign language. I just wanted to know somebody who can speak on normal terms. And there are plenty of people out there who don't speak sign language. Uh, I don't know, there's a comedian I can think of off the top of my head. I can't remember his name, but he was deaf. He was actually on uh, America's Got Talent, yeah. Um, he had hearing aids, and he spoke, and he talked about his deafness, and that was kind of a humor thing, but he said, I don't, I don't know sign language. Um, so I was like, I related with really well with him, but I also was like, you know, here's a guy succeeding, doing really well in the stand-up comedy. Um, so that was just like a challenge for me to, and I'm still not 100% there, but just really understanding my hearing, you know, where I'm at, that's like where I'm going, I can't escape that. You know, had a problem, you know, with the world defines itself, and it is hard, and it's limiting, and I, I struggle, I see the struggle with other deaf people. The world defines itself by people who are capable of things. You know, uh, a work that I had told me that I wasn't able to go to the next level because they're implementing a new program that requires you to wear a headset. And I was like, I'm sorry, I can't wear those headsets. It's not gonna happen. Like, I mean, even the head guy would come down to me, he's like, have you ever tried to use it? And I was like, I said that to the past three guys. I literally cannot. Um, and you can see the frustration with them because they like they had to use this program. And if I remember right, there was something about like the more people you have on the program, the more money incentive they would get. And it was just like a it was a crappy situation to see. And, and I'm just I'm I'm feeling the brunt of it because of something I literally can't do. And for them to say like you're never going to grow up in, in management or anything like that because they're going to need people who knows how to use this thing to train other people to use it. So I'm immediately pushed on the sideline because my hearing. Like, I, it literally defines me where I'm at simply because I can't hear. Even though the job that I was doing, I was doing perfectly well. Um, that was really hard. And it got to a point where I was like, I don't even want to be around that job anymore. I'm sure I could probably go back. If I was still there and that was happening, I could probably sue. Or um, and There are laws in place to, to help people like me. But at the time, I was frustrated or was angry. Um, and I feel like a lot of it's just like, we're so tired of dealing with this. We're always dealing with this. And it's exhausting. It really is. It's exhausting trying to advocate for yourself. Um, and, and I know that from my sister. Like her being, she speaks sign language. 
uh, a lot more and she works with children who are deaf and uh, have mental issues and stuff in schools and she sees the struggles that they have to deal with um, and they're tired of advocating for themselves so she's trying to be there to advocate for them and so it's like a, it got me to a place where I realized that I want to start advocating for people who are deaf and people who are disability have dis uh, disability and and for any kind of um, particular group of people who have been ostracized by uh, a normal position to power, you know. And that's kind of a weird line for me because I always see myself, I'm just this white guy who's straight, um, normal or anything like that, but when it comes to like, hey, I'm literally deaf, I can't do these particular things, and then it kind of becomes a problem. And I see you with other people who are disabled, that they're, you know, we're just struggling, you know. And we live in a world that is, the world defines itself by having um, perfect ability and, um, Anybody with disability is just kind of pushed on the sideline, or we're token pieces, and you know, we're that token guy, and that that's annoying. You know, um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm feeling like that. So what do you when you say, or you're the token guy? Like I think that's uh, you know I'm thinking of that phrase like from movies, like you know where you'd have the token black guy, you know, right. for instance, and so. So I think maybe people have an idea of what that might look like in terms of like race or sexuality or gender. What, when, when you say that in, in, ref, in reference to someone who's deaf, how do you think that, how does that play out to be like the token deaf guy? It, you know, when, so it's, for me, it's like I'm this white guy. So it's like I'm participating and then when somebody points out this guy is deaf and like all the attention comes to me about my deafness. And so it's back to back to the point of kind of that being what defines you right. more than anything else. Yeah, and I was like, you didn't see the other things that I was doing. Now you're all you're paying attention to is the fact that I have I have a lack of hearing. Yeah, and when I was in the ministry, that that was a common thing. Um, Sometimes, and this just happened when I was in ministry. I had long hair, and um, I wore my I straightened my hair because it would curls and it goes crazy. So I would purposely straighten it, and it would cover my ear. Um, and then when people were like shocked to find out that I was deaf on stage, and I was like, all the attention went to it. Um, and this might be like a weird God moment that I was traveling on the road, and I think I was praying in a van. We had little moments where we were praying, and I just felt like, uh, like something dropped in me. I don't know what the term is, like something dropped in my spirit, but like something dropped in me and it said, "Stop hiding behind your ears." Um, and I immediately felt like I, I knew exactly what it was, what what I felt like was speaking to me. It was God. Um, which at the time I really believe, and I still, I still do. Like I want to, I believe that. But I felt like he was saying, you know, "Stop hiding behind your ears. You're covering your ears a lot. Um, you're making that." So I, I was like, "I gotta go get a haircut." So I did, um, and then I kind of like, it was almost like it got to a point where instead of hiding it, I just wanted to get that out of the way. And I met people, met pastors, like, "Hey, by the way, I'm also deaf." You know. You have questions, talk about it, like get this out of the way so we can do our normal thing. I don't have to go on about that. And that was kind of exhausting too. And especially in the church, where I'm sure we can talk about it more if you want to. Um, just like the church had this idea of, oh, they see me as a deaf, as someone who's imperfect. I'm reformed, I do my I preach, and, um, and instead of me doing the ministry, they want to do the ministry to me and want to pray for me and, and try to see if I would be healed that day. Um, and that is annoying. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, well, I want to. I want. I want to get to that in just a minute. But before before we leave this idea of kind of 
this being what defined you? Because uh, I thought it was interesting when, when I first read you saying that, that my life has always been defined by, by my deafness. I was sort of reading that and, and interpreting that, I guess, as the way you sort of have had to navigate through the world. But when you talk about it, it sounds more like these are sort of definitions that have been placed on you by others and by the outside world. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I think both parts are true. Right. Like yeah. Idea, but that's like an additional. But as, yeah. as as far as like identity goes, it's been more about because you navigating the world as someone who is deaf is one thing. Yeah. But the world seeing you primarily as a deaf person is like a a different set of yeah. issues, right? And that's like my biggest resistance. When I was like, I goes all the way back when I was a kid. I just, I didn't want them to be put that on me. I wanted, I wanted to say, this is who I am. I wanted to find me. Um, and I can use my own deafness. I have no problem telling people that I'm deaf. Like, uh, but I was like, I, that is not exactly who I am. I have all these other quirks about myself, and I like to talk about those things as well. You know, I can go on and on about music. On and on about theology, like going on, like all these things have been like a great conversation, and I, I can spend hours talking about those things. But a lot of time, when people first meet me, or if we're in a setting for some reason, especially like the churches, they just want to like, oh, so how how is it you're deaf? Why do you not know sign language? A lot of these questions that a lot of deaf people are so tired of hearing. You know, I, I even thought at one point I'm going to wear a shirt, with a white shirt, with all the way. Yes, I am deaf. No, I don't know sign language. I'm not going to learn. Leave me alone. Like, <laughs> it's to get that other questions out of the way. Um, Just have a card that you hand people that's got it <laughs> yeah. all on it, right? I've literally thought those things. Um, and I know there are other people like myself who have done that. And I'm not just hearing, but uh, you know, blindness and wheelchairs and all this kind of stuff. You know, it was just like, we're more than just the things that, the physical things that you see. You know, that's what we want. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your, your experience kind of with church and, and deafness. Talk a little bit about that and how just where, where that has caused you some, some frustration and struggle. Um, interesting. My first foray into church was, um, I think, I was eight, I believe I was eight years old. My dad would go to this lady to get his hair cut. And... She was talking about the church that she goes to. They were having a revival. This guy who was known for having healings, and so my, they, she invited my dad, and my dad was like, "Oh, my two kids have deafness, so he would try." We went to a revival, um, I guess, hoping for us to be healed, and we didn't. But and it was like we went to the church. I guess they were warm and opening with him. Um, that he just kept on going. That would become that became my church. Excuse me, and. It was like from there, we were always a part of church, and there was some appealing aspect to me. I feel like maybe as a kid growing up, uh, I kind of had this understanding of what church was, maybe through movies or something, I don't know, because um, I believed in angels when I was a little kid, and like I, but I didn't really understand the whole Christian concept of what church was until that moment. And then from there, uh, there was this appealing to the Christian message, and I was really attracted, even at a young age, to the person Jesus um, and the gospel message and you know, the weird story of the Bible that was presented. I never even you know, heard those things. Um, so I was really paying attention to it, but this was a very charismatic church, so um, 
we were always having moments where we wanted to have revivals. There was like a revival every other month, it seemed like. And we would go to most of them, and always, always, I was always up there, and they would have to pray for me to be healed. Um, again, obviously, that never happened. Uh, and other people. And uh, sometimes I wonder if I ever broke anybody's faith with that. You know, like they wanted to really believe that I was going to be healed, and it didn't happen, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was a, a constant thing. Uh, like you get to a point where you're just kind of tired of it. Because um, even then, it was like my dad really believed that my healing was going to happen. My sister and I were healing was going to happen. And it got to, my dad was really involved in the church, he really got into the message, started reading the Bible a lot more. And every morning, I even before school started, I always remember going out. I remember always seeing some televangelist on there, like Benny Hinn, or people who were always talking about healing. Um, and I've been to three Benny Hinn, what do you call them, crusades, healing crusades. I've been to three of them, all expecting to be healed. One in a very young age and early teenagers and stuff. And um, I always have people ask me, like, well, what? Why couldn't it happen after I talked about that? I was like, I don't know. You could not tell me I didn't have the faith. I really did believe with all my heart that things were going to happen. Um, I remember my stepmom at the time, my, I don't know, my first one I went to, uh, I was heartbroken leaving out of that place. And she said, she's like, don't feel too bad because if you watch, if you see all these people, there were a lot of people being wheelchaired out. You know, they didn't get their healing. So it's like, you're not the only one. But it still didn't like hurt me because I really believed that it was going to happen. I've seen all those people walk up on the stage and everybody talking about being healed. And there were deaf people being healed, old millionaires, and all these stories. And they're just like, why couldn't it happen to me? Um, and I still don't know the answer to that. I really like that's the question I'm always kind of wondering. Um, but even like even on the, in the revival in my church, there was always people who wanted to single me out. And uh, it's funny because like that's actually got to a point where as a kid you. They always like my hearing aid mold. They, uh, you know, you want to have like fancy colors. So I had like blue and yellow stripes and all that kind of stuff. But I got you older and I realized that that was kind of like people were noticing it easier. And it was the church that was, I didn't want them to notice my hearing every time we got a new evangelist to come through. Because they would single me out. It was like, obviously. And, then, and I'm pretty sure some of them were kind of like frauds because they were like, I hear God speak. And then you know, there's somebody who can't hear or deaf or whatever, and they like, mm -hmm. point me out. Like, you saw me because you noticed my bright colored hearing aids. Even then, I'm like, I'm not that stupid. <laughs> um, but I started, like, that's just getting colored clear or that kind of thing. So, still didn't stop them from noticing me, but I felt like it was a lot less attracting. Um, but I just, like, as a kid, you start to hear a lot of that kind of stuff. And there were some other traumatic things that happened because of like the reason why I didn't receive my healing. You know, my own pastor at the time told me that I was not demon possessed, but told me that I was um, oppressed. I don't know the exact language that he said, but it was there was a demon. If, if I remember his word correct, there was a demon hindering me from receiving my healing, um, and that terrified. Me. That was like nine or something like that. Like. My dad, we watched horror movies growing up. Like I, he always taught me, like this is all fake. Like so, I was never scared of Freddy Krueger or Jason or any of that kind of stuff, except for the general normal jump scares. Um, but I didn't have nightmares or anything like that. The only one that he ever taught me was like this kind of stuff is real. Was like The Exorcist or those kind of possession movies. Um, and those did terrify me. And like 
having that kind of image of what possession looks like in the horror realm, like, and couple that with, hey, I might actually have a demon in me or oppressing me, that kind of stuff. I had nightmares, decades, like, constantly returning nightmares. Um, even in the ministry, it was just like, it was constantly happening. And I never understood why until going through my deconstructing, if you will, um, where I started questioning everything. And I got to a point where I was questioning the reality of Satan and what he is, and like I didn't really quite understand it, but it kind of like, I stopped giving that kind of power over me, like, because I was like, I don't think that is exactly real, at least not in the way that I believed it. The nightmares just stopped. I have no way to explain it. Like, I, I haven't had a nightmare since concerning about people I'm being possessed or anything like that. Um, and I know that's kind of like a whole different kind of conversation we can have about theology with um, the demonic realm or whatever. But the charismatic world that I grew up in was like everything was demonic. Um, every person with disability has a demon in them where it was like, and so not only were you just praying for the healing, you're also praying for some oppressive spirit keeping them from getting healing and stuff. So it was, like, it was traumatizing for me as a kid to have experienced that. Um, so like my work is like I I want I speak out now like this is why I believe what I believe because I don't want anybody else to go through the same thing I did. Don't put your kids through that especially. Right, because even just that language of of healing um, to to say that you're you're wanting a healing or whatever whatever language you put in front whatever word you put in front of that wanting needing going for a healing assumes that there's something wrong right there's something incomplete or yeah. unwhole or less than about your current state yeah and so then if you if you don't get the quote-unquote healing i would imagine it takes some time to to rectify that and and sort of it's like you said as a kid like if if you continually don't get the healing that you feel like has been promised or told yeah. to you is coming or whatever that's got to be a struggle of of coming to realize I, I am whole now, right? Yeah, yeah. I went through my whole, especially my teenage years, believing I would never complete, um, that I wasn't perfect, I wasn't good enough, because I haven't I haven't got this healing yet. Yeah, and it still like affects me today. Not so much on my hearing level, but I'm always like in a place of like I'm not good enough. Um, and I know, like, working through therapy and that kind of stuff to kind of help me get over that point. But it's still, like, I, I know it's still in my head. I'm always believing that I'm never good enough um, at the church. Unfortunately, like, I wish they would recognize that, that mm -hmm. the language that they're putting on people is that you're not good enough until such and such thing happens. Right. Um, and when it doesn't happen, it's still, and you're speaking, even though they may not be talking directly to me, I'm always hearing it being preached on stage. I'm always seeing it, like, that wholeness comes when your body is perfectly healed, that you get all functions of your body exactly the way it's designed to be, mm -hmm. whatever that looks like. Um, yeah, it, it's been a lifelong struggle to, to convince myself that as I am, I am good enough. Um, but the disability people, at least I don't know from people who are deaf, that that's what they see when they go to church, that they're not good enough. Yeah, yeah, and I wonder, okay, so this is going to be me talking out loud here and talking something out, so <laughs> walk with me for a minute here, <laughs> because I think whether it's deafness or, or another type of disability, like, I don't think anyone would begrudge you or another individual from, like, 
seeking a way to mitigate that or quote unquote improve your hearing or something, you know? And so there has to be, it seems like there's, there would be a tension there between that, but also accepting and knowing that you're whole now. Like that's gotta be, I would assume a constant tension. It is. And I guess part of it would be like maybe other people from outside, not placing the expectation on you that Mm. You have to do this in order to to be whole or something like yeah. that, right? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it, even even in the deaf community, I um, have been trying to plug myself a little bit more so I can understand the world because um, I've never really been involved in that world other than what I've seen through my sister's eyes. Um, but there are people in that community that who are like fully embrace their deafness, fully like this is I am like they're. They can come to a place where they have no hearing at all, and they're like they're happy. They say they're happy out that they're that's where they're at, and that's what they want to be seen at. That they don't want anybody to come in saying, "Hey, I have hearing aids that can help improve your hearing." Like, they don't want that. I struggle with that myself because, uh, like I said earlier, like I love music. Like it, it is a part of who I am. I am like the biggest metalhead you'll ever meet. Um, and the fear that I have that if my hearing gets worse, that I'm not going to hear. The music like I've mm-hmm. always heard of and I would want to have something in this world to help me improve that or to keep that from happening um, but even me speaking that out there are people who in the deaf community would be like you're not deaf you're not, you know that's wrong for you to say that mm-hmm. so there's always this weird liminal space uh, like the word I use in my essay um, that I feel like I exist in because I and there's nothing against the deaf community who feel that way at all. Like, I, if that's what you want to be, like, hey, I, I'm absolutely happy for you. But I was like, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Like, there are things that I absolutely enjoy that does require hearing um, with music and that kind of thing. So, like, that's kind of, like, scare me to, to a degree that something can happen. Like, I would, I would want an improvement. So I, it, it is a weird way to say, like, to believe that I'm, I'm good enough as I am, which also, like, if there was ever a, an opportunity for an improvement to be better, to hear better, I, I would actually take that. Uh, you know, the option was if my hearing got worse, because it had gotten worse over the years, like, would I ever go to cochlear implant? Because I could really improve it. Because I've talked to a few people, um, and I've talked to a, a neuro, neurosurgeon in uh, Florida about it, and he was like, but that's what he does. He helps. He does surgery for people who get cochlear implants, and he's like, "Well, you seem to be doing really well as you are right now. I would not recommend it until you lost your hearing a lot, because you're basically going to have to rewire your brain to or retrain your brain, hit the word he used, to learn how to hear again, because you're you're going from a different place rather than through yours like you are right now." And he's like, "That may not make sense to you, but until you go through that, it will." And it's very difficult for people to transition. He's like, because you're doing so well with what the hearing you have right now, I would not recommend it. Um, and I was, I'm always saying, it's like, well, I'm only doing it as well as I am right now because I fought and worked so hard to look like I'm doing well. <laughs> like, even my last hearing test that I had to take um, a couple years ago, the, the, the doctor is like, I, I'm shocked because the way you approached me coming in here, I would not know that you have this much hearing loss. Like, I'm in the profound way. And, like, and to the word of deafness, like, I am deaf. I just have a really strong hearing aid and I have really, with a lot of effort, attention, and I can pay attention to what people are saying and I understand words really well. Um, I read a lot of lips and that's kind of where it helped me and stuff like that, so. 
but he wouldn't take the test and it was like, wow, you're, you're really, you're deaf. Like, you're as deaf as you can possibly be without absolutely losing your hearing. So that's like the, the world I, I try to be in. It's like, I, I'm only here where I am right now because I worked so hard to prove that I could do this. Um, and that's exhausting sometimes. I mean, it's exhausting. I just want to like, can you just not let me, like, can you just put on all the subtitles and make things a lot easier for me? Because for once, I just want to like not have to advocate for myself and prove that I'm deaf. And um, I, don't, I don't really know like how it's just, it's just exhausting. Um, but to hear him say that also, it's like a testament to make me feel good that I, that I can work this as hard as I can. And there are a lot of deaf people who do work as hard as they can to get there. And they, they want to be seen like that, but not like defined by that. They just want to be recognized like this is, you know, they're human. They, we're all fully capable of doing all, all the hard work. We just can't hear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, if your job revolved with having to be on the phone all the time, that's a job we're not going to be able to do. Which is really surprising how many people don't realize like how much being on the phone is required of you to work at a job. Well, so what, what are some other things that you have found are, are surprising for people to learn about like difficulties that you face just in sort of navigating your way through a day or activities? Like what are the things that, that other people may not recognize are, are difficult or a struggle for you? Um, I feel like um, the biggest one is conversations with people. Um, for me, I um, when I'm surrounded with a lot of noise, I think for a lot of people, okay, so what I've learned, a lot of people are like, how can we do to help you here? And the first instinct is to make everything louder, <laughs> which actually makes things a lot worse. Like, it does not help. Um, it's, you have to make things clearer, and I think a lot of people don't understand, like, make things so when you amplify all the noises, like it just, um, I'm, and we're trying to focus on words mm. and to make things easier to understand, which is why like we have subtitles, because um, all the extra noise, um, especially if you got like a Michael Bay movie in theaters, like it's just constant explosions. Like if I had no subtitles, I have, I would have absolutely no idea what's going on. None. Like if, if I look away, like I saw Transformers, one of the Transformers movies. And it's just constant explosion. And there was a moment, if I, I look away, and I'm like, I have no idea what just happened. I have no idea what's being said. I don't know if anything, like, if it's necessarily need to be said, because it's just explosion. But it was just like, it was so hard for me to focus. Like, I needed to hear what was going on um, and to make certain noises come to me. And I saw this one other really good movie. It's like a, a complete opposite. Like, everything was so quiet. And it was just conversation. It was one of the first few movies, I'm trying to think of, I think it was Lincoln. Um, there was like very low music, if anything, there wasn't music. I don't remember if there was any music, but it was just like two person talking and, or by myself. So I, like, I would just had to face in the movie and like I actually understood what for the most part, I felt like I understood at least the, the main parts of it. I don't do parties, like massive amounts of parties. Like, um, I especially don't like going to bars. A lot of bars are just super loud. Um, even my girlfriend and I, we would go to the bar where they have karaoke, and I felt like super fun at the beginning because it's like usually one person, everybody quiet, everybody wants to listen. But then at some point in the night, everybody, the crowd just comes in, and it's just like I literally can't hear anything. I can barely hear the conversation in front of me, and, and uh, my, my, my instinct is like, let's go. Like I don't, it's just really uncomfortable for me because everybody's talking. It's just so loud. I don't, I don't understand everybody's talking. And uh, I have another point here, like earlier. Uh, I would just through some like my 
early 20s, went to some bar, and uh, it was like the music was pumping so loud. Like I, even people in there were like, I have no idea what you're saying. And one of my friends came up to me, and she was like, hey, she was asking me if I wanted a beer. And I had, literally had no idea what she was saying. I could not understand. I was like, what? Over and over. She's like, do you want something? I could not understand her. I was like, sure, okay. <laughs> she turned around and walked away, and I was like, I have no idea what you're saying. I just kind of went standing around. I didn't know it was very uncomfortable. She came back, handed me a beer, and like, it clicked in my head. I was like, oh, you were asking me if I wanted something to drink. <laughs> Um, so like that's a kind of like a normal experience. I don't, I do not like. It's just so uncomfortable when everything is so loud. I literally can't make sense of everything. Um, I'm always like, why don't people just go to like a bookstore? Like, can we just be quiet? Go to a library and just make things a lot easier. Um, well, some of those spaces are, are hard, even for those who who are hearing. That I can't imagine just the difficulty of if you can't hear that that yeah just really amplifies it. And even I, I was reading an article a while back about like just the way that movies and shows are shot and made now, it was about kind of something about like, here's why you need subtitles now to hear in a, <laughs> yeah. in a show or movie. Yeah. And, and so some of these things are issues across the board. And so I can just imagine how much more so if you, yeah. if you start with, without that ability to hear that, that just, yeah, makes it worse. Yeah. So I always hear people talk about that. They're like, oh, I put subtitles. I can't hear. I'm like, story of my life. Right. Now I you know how I feel. <laughs> So, so I would imagine it's helpful for you if you can like see the person that you're talking to, right? To be yeah. able to see their face, mm. which is part of I'm guessing why what makes phone calls so is that part of what makes phone calls so difficult? Is because you can't yeah, see it is. the person. It's trying to understand, and then obviously, like I guess the way voice translates through phones doesn't make things as clear. Mm. Um, it takes out some of the clarity of it. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people have their hearing aids that can make things better. They cost a whole lot of money, money I don't have. Um, there are some phones that have capabilities that kind of make things easier. And obviously that FaceTiming and all that, that's been really good. I mean, for like the longest time, I didn't have a conversation with my mom. I couldn't talk to her on the phone, it was like that. But then uh, once uh, FaceTiming, the idea of FaceTiming kind of started blowing up and then like I, talked, I texted my mom, and I was like, why don't we ever talk through Zoom or something? And mm. so we finally like had a conversation where I could talk to my mom for like after a decade and really never ever talking to her except for texting. So oh, to wow. see her face to face and have a conversation like that was, I don't know, that was really something that I've been missing. I didn't know I was missing my entire life. Mm. Just to be able to have a conversation with my mom. Yeah. So, and I feel like a lot of deaf people deal with that. You know, um, so one of the things that deaf people don't like is Thanksgiving. They hate Thanksgiving because Oftentimes they're the only deaf person in the place, and everybody's talking on the table. Yeah, there's so noise everywhere. Yeah, all the noises. Everybody's talking, and and I've experienced that. You know, everybody talking, uh, and you just can't really like hear what the conversation is. And it's really uncomfortable. And a lot of deaf, like I know deaf people, like they hate Thanksgiving. They do not look forward to the holiday because they don't want to sit amongst family who don't really like talk with them, they just kind of make conversation and you know, you're SOL if you're not involved. Mm. Well, and, and so I know one of the things you, you talked about, wrote about in this, this essay that you wrote was kind of this idea of, of existing in this liminal space, as you call it. Um, and you, you, you've kind of talked about that so far, but I'm curious to hear you talk about, define what you mean by liminal space and what that means for you as you kind of 
navigate life as someone who is deaf but is speaking English and not speaking in ASL. And just talk a little bit about that, about the liminal space that you kind of find yourself in. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting word. I didn't really know what that was until my professor was like, because when I wrote my draft, my professor was like, they really liked it, but I want you to expound more about what that, what that is, to what it like to live in that. He would use the word liminal space. You know, so I was like, I don't know what liminal space was. And uh, it's funny because I, like, I follow this guy on YouTube, on uh, TikTok who um, he makes horror, little horror clips and stuff like that. And some of his horror clips were always titled The Liminal Space. And it didn't click in my head what exactly that meant until I Googled it and I was like, oh, so it's like, it means it's space in between things. So, um, and like paranormal expert would use that word meaning like this house or this place is some place that exists where two polar opposite Maybe that's too extreme, but the idea is like two opposite somehow coexist with each other. So I'm like, you know, they have a house who have this spirits living in this place. So it's like this this house is somehow where the the living world as we see it and the spirit world somehow comes in. And so like people who make horror haunted house kind of vibe there, like they want to you know use that. So I was like thinking about that. And obviously, there's like a horror thing, but it's like the liminal space of the hearing world and the deaf world. Is that little tiny space that I exist in, and then there are other people who are deaf as well. It's like because I don't sign language, that ostracizes me from a lot of the deaf community because a lot of them do speak the sign language, um, and they have this community that revolves around speaking. They have their own language, their own culture, and that was something I never got involved in. And um, you can't just jump into your culture like that; just doesn't happen. You have to. You have to participate in it, and eventually, like they start to become part of your who you are. So I've never really been involved in that, but because I don't hear, there is some level of understanding that I have with them. Mm. Um, where the hearing world, the whole world kind of revolves around like you have perfect ability to do certain things, and there are certain things I will never do simply because I can't hear. I just, I just, but I participate in this world as well, so I feel like I have both feet and both worlds. So I'm like, I'm literally in the middle of this place to where I understand the hearing world and what they go through and how they, how they live their lives because I try so hard to be a part of that. Um, but the deaf world is like, I try so hard not to be a part of it, but I understand it because of, of my own deafness. And realizing that the work that I did for myself to hear or speak English, the language, I think language is such an important part. Um, that you know, it bridges things together when we learn another person's language. Um, you know, I remember hearing uh, a priest in San Francisco, a church I went to, when they were talking to their church about allowing their um, the Spanish community to come in. And he was talking to me like, let's, let's participate in learning Spanish because we want to bridge, build a bridge to other community. And some people got upset about that. Um, that's why I literally heard a guy get up and he's like, no, we're, we're in America, you speak American. I went to Germany, I learned German so I could speak German. Um, and I remember like, being shocked by it because of, like, here we literally just heard a message from Jesus about building a bridge to other, you know, to other people so you can build a community. And then you talk about this and people are getting upset. Um, and I feel like with the deaf community, it's not like, not so much like, I know the deaf community would love if everyone learned sign language, but I think it's a beautiful thing if people learn sign language. Um, but there are other languages, and I think it's like if we could somehow bridge 
to a place where we can understand each other and, and communicate um, in, a, in, a, in a succinct way to, to understand how the other person is so you can understand their world and you can understand their story that they're not just deaf. They have their own likes, their own faults. They have, they're, they're human beings. That's what we all want to be, to be to seen as that. And when we build that bridge by language, um, and that's kind of like where I feel, because I don't know the sign language, I've never been able to build that bridge to actually communicate with deaf people as much as I would want to, even though I may understand how the world operates simply because I am deaf. But I've been able to speak English for, for my entire life. I'm trying to work with that. And, and the world revolves around speaking English. Um, but it's still a level, just, it's just a, a matter of building that bridge with language and being able to make sure that communication works well to be able to understand it. Um, and I didn't even have to be perfect, like, perfect English. I, you know, I got to a point where my, my statement was like, if you've been able to communicate your idea effectively, it doesn't matter what word you use. Mm. You know, like I know like people are like they want to be perfect English and I got my, my step beyond that little point where it's just like you know you communicate your idea effectively then doesn't that doesn't have to be perfect you know like people change up English words now like I always thought it was funny when people start saying finna like I'm finna gonna do something even I can't even say it right but I've heard people say it um and at first when you hear that you're like what are you saying but then you start to understand how they're saying it and then it just becomes normal like they, communi they communicated their idea effectively. Why do you need to change it? So I think it's like really good to be understand that we can somehow communicate effectively, know what we want, to know what we need, to help each other, and just, just build a friendship, build a communication. And I think a lot of the deaf people are trying to do that, uh, even though they can't speak English very well, they can't hear it, they're trying to speak it through their hands. Um, and just learning a few, of the, a few of those things so you can build that bridge, build that understanding, and just make things a whole lot easier. Yeah. That we can work around things where, oh, we don't need to have phones. I don't have to call you. I can text you. We can set up a time to have a video chat. Like, all those little things really help build that bridge. You know, you know most of the night, Zoom now and all those kind of stuff, they have a little option on their thing to put captions on there. So that helped me out too, because my mom would talk, and like, I have no idea what she said, but the caption would, like, you know, it, it would pick up hmm. words that, you know, kind of fill in the gap for me. And, uh, and like YouTube now, a lot of TVs and stuff will have auto captions where it's not perfect, but uh, they get a lot of it. From, I know for myself, like we can, our brain can fill in the gaps where the words are like, that's not what she said because it doesn't make sense, but I know what they're trying to say and all that kind of stuff. So I think like we, we've evolved technologically really well with making things easier for a lot of us. But even to this day, there are some people who are like, I don't want subtitles over that. That annoys me. Um, but it's like, I've, want to use it. I would <laughs> well, say, honestly, for myself, the only time I don't want subtitle is when I'm watching a football game. There, there's so much people talking from all the thing on it, and it kind of, the word just kind of fills up on screen, and I'm like, can you get that out of the way, because I'm trying to watch the game. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I don't need to know what the commentators are saying, so, like, I just... Um, and I think a, a lot of those things that you're talking about, I think if we were going to, kind of going back to language, because I, I think you're right, like if you can communicate your idea effectively, you know, that's good. But also I think it's also helpful to know where language choices are actually doing harm, yeah. right? Like, like with the, like going back to healing, right? To say I'm going to, I'm seeking healing, 
assumes something, and, th- and in that case, language can be can be harmful. Right. And and so when when you were talking about all those kind of ways of building bridges, I was thinking that I think traditionally we would refer to those as something like making accommodations for, you, you know? Yeah. And it sounds, those, those, I, those, that language sounds very different. Like to make accommodations for sounds very different than building bridges toward. Yeah. Um, do you hear those differently? Because like when we say things like making accommodations for, to me it still has this like inferior right. connotation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas building bridges seems more about relationship and connections than I'm doing something to help you out because you're less than. Yeah. And I've, I've had this guy ask me once, so he was talking about that. He wanted to ask me what I wanted because he knew I was deaf. And he's like trying to figure out work. He, he literally said, he's like, what can I do to help you? What do you want? And I said, I just want a friend. Mm. And I remember like taking back. Like that's all I want. I just want a friend. And I don't want anybody trying to do all this extra stuff. I just want you to be my friend. Mm. We just talk about fun stuff. I don't want to talk about my deafness. I just want a friend. Yeah. Um, but that kind of like shook him. We're not friends. Simply <laughs> <laughs> uh, because he was just always involved with other stuff. But um, he was just asking, and but that's just like that's just what we really want. We just want we just want friends. We want family. We want we want relationship. Um, and yeah, the idea of like trying to be healed, trying to be accommodating, it still really feels like we're just trying to do these things so that way you can feel like you're involved. Mm-hmm. Where we just like, I just want a friend. Yeah. Um, I want to bounce ideas off. You know, we're all intelligent people. We all want to talk about what's going on in the world. We want to talk about our likes. And, and when you're just trying to make accommodation to for us to be there, um, it's kind of like how people would uh, the language whenever it's like uh, this is something I always felt like um, when we're like when people start to plan things, you know, you kind of like on the outside and they're like, oh, we're gonna go over here, and they look at me and they go like, oh, um, if you want to come, you can come, and so it's like you guys still would have done whatever it is you wanted to do, but because you recognize that I'm here, you're like, oh, um, you're involved if you want to show up. So it always feels like I'm the, the option, you know, like, oh crap, this person's here, like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to offend them by doing this thing. Where if you just change it, it's like, hey, immediately, like, we want you to be with us. Like, just a simple change in your language to where, like, instead of saying, if you want to come, you can come along, to I want you to come. Like that, that makes a whole bit of difference. And then all of a sudden you feel like you're actually a part of it. You want to be, they want you involved. And that makes the massive difference because I feel like a lot of people, um, and then my sister can attest to this too, especially with how she's always felt. It was just like, we were just a sideline piece. We're the token characters. Mm-hmm. You know, if we want to come along, we're, we're invited along for the ride. You can tag along. Yeah, but we were never the first thought. And I think a lot of it just wanted to be like, just want to feel included. Um, and that wording really helps it. Mm. Uh, That's good. That's helpful. Well, there's there's a there's a lot of helpful stuff there. I think about that that conversation and topic specifically about about deafness. But I think so much of what you were talking about. I think I think there's connections a lot more broadly, right? Like even when you're talking about being 
like define others defining you by your deafness as a kid. Um, like I was thinking back, I rem- like when I was a kid, I was always the short kid, and and I I didn't want to be the short kid. I wanted to be something else, and and so I think of of how so many of us probably struggled with our identity or whatever it is being defined by how others saw us instead of ourselves being able to to sort of choose and define that ourselves and that that inner struggle yeah. and the reminder of how how similar we all are in some ways but also dealing with our own set mm-hmm. of you know kind of whether it's issues or whatever you want to say. <laughs> um, and, and just lear- hopefully learning to value each other's stories, but also recognize that there's something communal that we're all sort of struggling through as we try to figure out who we are and, and, and um, our own sense of identity as, as we kind of make our way. Um, and then with those ideas of, I, I thought there was an interesting metaphorical connection with that idea of, of the liminal space and building bridges that you're in this space in between these two worlds um, and the importance maybe then of, of building bridges in order to, to help make connections um, and, and relationships and all those things. And I think that concept probably could extend more broadly as well. And, and so this, this would probably have to more be a, a conversation for another day more fully so we can come back to this another time. Sure. But that idea, because I know you, you've had a, an interesting faith journey as well that, yeah. that has in some ways been impacted by, by kind of your experience with church and, and deafness and, and all that. But I think that's led to a lot of theological shifts yeah. as well on that journey, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think many of us who have gone through that kind of, if you want to call it deconstruction, faith journey, whatever your language is there, that sort of feel like we're also in liminal spaces there. Yeah. And so I'm curious if you see connections there. So you see yourself in the kind of this liminal space in terms of, of hearing do you feel like you're in similar liminal spaces as it relates to theology, church, faith? Yeah, I mean, we could talk a long time, but um, absolutely. Uh, so the long short, like I, in my, my faith journey, I never went, I entertained the idea of like atheism because there was like a question of like, when I questioned everything I believed and it was like, you know, even when I was going through my healing and trying to understand like, you know, it's, it is difficult. You're, like, you're reading the scripture. You're, you're seeing, even though Jesus was working, everything he's doing, his, you know, his, his parables are always about like embracing people, embracing the other. And we knew that he worked to include the others. But I still can't deny that there were a couple, devil, a couple, my, my uh, wording started me up there. You, know, you can see why I still have a struggle. Um, like there were a couple of people that he healed that were deaf. So I'm like, I'm seeing this going like, like, come on, like, I'm still deaf, so why isn't it? Um, I even like, I remember laying in bed wanting to be healed. I had a moment of like, God, I'm tired of wearing a hearing aid. And um, pretty sure the Aramaic word that Jesus used to heal this person to be open the ear to Tulutha Kumai um, in Arabic. And I remember sitting there laying in bed going like, Tulutha Kumai, like, open my ear, open my ear. Um, <laughs> Well, in one of those stories, it's a long story in John, yeah. and he's just repeatedly referred to as the deaf man. Yeah. So to your point about like that being right, what defines right. you, like that he's not even given a name; he's yeah. just the deaf man. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, I, it does. I still have to, to wrestle with that. Um, 
But I think what kind of held me to still have a belief in the Jesus, because there were some profound experiences I've had um, that I know some people were probably like, oh, you know, your brain is really good at making up crap. But there were also experiences that I've had that were shared in community. Um, and I think that was kind of like, I can go, my brain didn't make this up because you were there. Um, and we all, we all can say that. And, and it's still to this day, I don't know how to explain that. I just know something surreal, profound happened in that. That really shifted my belief. And I really took the words and read seriously. I really believed that this person existed in the name of Jesus. I really believed that the resurrection story happened. Um, I really believed the, the impact that I felt in my own heart, physically, as well as like how my mental and my spirituality changed. Um, and there were profound moments that I felt that shifted in me that I was like, there's no way that this didn't happen had not Jesus accepted. Mm -hmm. Could I find years down the road that maybe I'm, I'm in the wrong religion and some other faith? Maybe. I don't believe that because I really believe that, that, that Jesus is one because that was the name I called upon. Um, so in my deconstructing, I couldn't shake that part. Like there was just something going on. I'm not going to sit here and deny that. Because I would just feel like injustice to everything I'm questioning. But I really questioned a lot of the things I believe. I questioned the atonement thing because like none of those things make sense because I, I was really taught that this man was full of love, that God is love. You know, he's not loving, he is love. He's the, the essence of what love really is. Um, and in, in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul defined that what love is. And so I, you know, it was like, Jesus has to define all these things. Love, I like for example, love holds no record of wrong. If that's what love is, then God is not holding any of my wrong into some kind of weird record. So, and so my theology is just collapsing it because I have this mentality that when we die, we're going to see this huge movie screen where our life is being played before us and we're going to have to answer for every little thing. And here I'm reading Love Holds No Record of Wrong. So it's like, why is this recording of my life being recorded of all my wrongdoing? Like none of these things couldn't make sense. So how to reconcile what is love? How to define that? And I'm not saying that I have that in head in, in perfect, you know, what that is, but it, it took me on a journey. It's like I wanted, I believe that love is the most important thing. It's what's going to make this world go better. It's what builds community. Um, it's what stops wars. You know, it, it we just like see across the aisle and look at people in love. And Jesus was the only one that I could see that actually told us to love our enemies. And that is really hard to do. Um, but I, I still like that is important. Um, there's a really beautiful movie called Joe X, no, Joe, Joe X Noel, I believe, I'm, I might be saying it wrong, but it's just about this moment in World War I where two warring people, they had a moment of ceasefire because it was Christmas. Mm -hmm. And they reached across the aisle and they had Christmas dinner with each other. And then when it was time to start the war again, they couldn't fight because they had a meal together. Mm -hmm. And I remember like, just being impacted by that because I was like, that's, that's the gospel. That has to happen. Um, it just and I, that's why I, the, the gospel always seems to be centered around having a meal. Mm. And it's the time where we all get together, we all share something, um, and that that has an impact on me my entire life. So I was like, I always came back to that. Um, so in even the moments where I was entertaining the idea of atheism, because you know you question what is the reality of God, 
um, you know, all of the year. Um, I tried apologetics at one point. Um, it just made me a jerk. If you want to ask what apologetic does, it just makes people jerks. And that's what I became. And I realized now what it looked like. But all those questions that apologetics are trying to do, uh, like trying to say the reason why we have God is, you know, because we have morals. Like, but there are atheist counterclaims that can, can go against that. And you, when you hear both arguments, you know, you know that God makes sense. Um, so, and I, 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 I I, you know, and with the help of people like Brad Jerzak and Brian Zahn, and there are other people at faith that I was able to contact with, um, particularly Brad Jerzak, he's been a, a really a strength in my life. And I had an old mentor who passed away, um, Pastor Vinny in Florida. Um, God bless his heart, he was an amazing guy. That it was just like, it was about the experience. Your experience is what you're gonna, is what's gonna carry you forward. Like it's what's gonna save, save your faith. Um, and you know, being in that liminal space now, like having deconstructed, and I'm always going through deconstructing, you know, I'm always open to having my worldview shattered again and just being like, okay, I was wrong about this. Like, I'm okay with that. I want that to happen, honestly. Um, but there is that, because I was in such a strong fundamental group, like this is what we believe, we're the right one. Sure, other people are Christian, but we were the most correct one. Um, and that was like a strong feeling that we had. Coming out of that, and interacting with them still, and it's like, I've been ostracized. Like some of those people won't even let me back into the church because I don't believe in like the, the existence of the eternal conscious torment version of hell, where there's a fire where we're all gonna go. And, and if you've never said the, the Lord's Prayer at some point in your life, like that's your destination. Like we're born, everyone born to go to that place unless you said those words. Like I don't believe that anymore because I physically said those words, I don't believe that. There are people going, you're not allowed to be here. Um, and I'm like, well, these are the people that I grew up with. Like, these are, at one point, my friends that I had dinner with and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I've, I've been able to come on, not so much an, I went to atheism, but, you know, there were people who were agnostic and atheists who went through deconstructing and decided to go, I don't believe in any of that stuff anymore, which is perfectly fine. Like, I'm okay with that where your journey leads you. But some of them have been like, oh, you never completed your journey yet until you fully deconstructed and become an atheist. I'm like, but I don't want to go there. Like, I, I have this experience that I really believe that Jesus is real and he's been real in my life. Um, and because of that, they, they kind of look at me going, well, you're, you're still an idiot. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, other, and other words that they use. And it's just like this weird space and I'm in between with people who are like, they don't believe at all, or people who are fully fundamental. Um, but I think what is beautiful about the Christian faith is that there's so many different expressions about it. And, because I come out of that, I've been able to introduce myself to other expressions of faith. And I really find a lot of people have a beautiful way of loving Christ and loving other people. And that was one of the biggest shifts in my, uh, that, that made me deconstruct, just realizing because of the ministry that I was involved in, we were in a interdenominational ministry. So we went to Catholic church, we went to Methodist now. I got to meet people who I initially thought when I first walked in, like, well, you know, and you, I know you got to believe in Jesus, but your theology is a little wrong. And then I saw them love people. And they love people way better than I did. Mm. And I shook my core, because I really, that was the other thing that I stood upon. I was like, I wanted to love people. And I hated that people were doing it better than I was. <laughs> I really hate, I hated people were doing that better than I was. And it made me rethink about everything. And it was just simply because I met people, had dinner with them, shared with them, I got to hear their stories and why they are. Um, 
And I grew up with believing that the Catholics were basically the Antichrist because of some theology we had, their connection with Rome and Rome is the Antichrist in the future, blah, blah, blah. And so like anybody who was Catholic was like connected to that. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to meet Catholics and I'm just like, you know, there's something really endearing about what they believe and why they do things. Granted, there's a lot of issue within the Catholic Church with, um, with politics and the, uh, the protection of those who have been hurt by that, you know, like that, that needs to be addressed and a lot of them are addressed, that, but there are people who are practicing that faith in a way that I really feel like is beautiful. They help me understanding in such a way that I'm like, even I'm like, maybe I should be Catholic. <laughs> um, but you know, is that just like, it just really helped me see that they're, they're just people and they're just doing their best. And I mean, you just kind of sit and have dinner with each other and just be, communicate with each other. That, that bridge was built between us. Um, yeah, well, I, th I think, you know, it's interesting. A couple of concepts that keep coming up. One, like you said, there's, there seems to be this connection there of, so you, you exist in this liminal space in terms of your hearing and also now liminal space in terms of your faith and, and how there's a lot of similarities there, right, to having kind of feet in both worlds. And um, I think a lot of us are experiencing that of not not feeling quite at home with what we kind of grew up with yeah. but so where does that mean home is now yeah um and i think so and in terms of language then another concept we've kind of been talking about there's there's got to be a better word than deconstruction because i think again deconstruction does imply just tearing it all down and that's it yeah and because and and so yeah and and that has been the path that some have taken a path of deconstructing faith and yeah. then there's nothing left at the end and I think that's the fear that that people have of even beginning that path is like well so am I just tearing all this down and there's going to be nothing right um, and so there's got to be maybe there's a better word that we could think of or come up with that it's got because there has to be some reconstruction element of yeah. it as well. But I think part of what I'm coming to see and, and that I think is part of the difficulty of it is that with a certain kind of idea of faith, whether you want to call it fundamentalism or whatever, I think part of the, the comfort of that is that there are easy, clear-cut, black-and-white answers. Right. Like with, you know, substitution, um, you know, penal substitution atonement theory, which is hard as that is to, you know, it sounds really long, but just that idea of, you know, people are evil, so God took out his wrath on Jesus so right. that people could have forgiveness, and you can choose that or you can choose, you know, to reject it. Um, and granted, there are other pieces of it, but that's like this easily kind of, it's easy to comprehend right. from our from our human standpoint of justice and punishment for evil. Like it makes sense right. um, if you accept Jesus's grace and are good, you do this happens. If not, this happens. And there's just clear cut answers in a lot of kind of that fundamentalism. Yeah. And then once you leave that, I think you have to be willing to embrace not only the liminal spaces, but what I'm coming to believe more and more is you have to be willing to embrace mystery. And, and I guess that would be the liminal space, right? You have, to, you have to be willing to be okay in those liminal spaces of not having all the answers right. and knowing that searching for those can be good, but, but we're probably not going to find the clear-cut answers that yeah. at one time felt comfortable. Right. Yeah, I like it. You, you nailed it perfectly. That, um... That was like the question that, that my hope in 
and realizing that I, I exist in this liminal space. Like I didn't choose to be here, I just happened to be here and realizing that. And and being comfortable, at least in the faith part. Like I'm still working on the, the depth part, but in the, the faith part was I realized that I just, I'm I'm hoping that trying to communicate to people who are still in the fundamental and it's like, hey, you need to open your mind and understand it. Like there are understandings that we may have missed it. Like you have to be honest and okay with yourself to say, maybe I got something wrong. Mm-hmm. And just and be open to learning other things, other aspects. And then to the people who shook it all the way into there's nothing, you know, there's nothing out there, my hope is to show them it's like just don't fool your fish. Mm-hmm. Leave your hand open. You know, there's a lot of things that we don't know. And I'm not saying it's like don't be an atheist, be an agnostic. It's just like there are some people who are too gone so far to where they close off and they become anti-theists. I mean, that can be dangerous too. Uh, you know, Joseph Stalin, you can name all these lead leaders because a lot of people, they'll, they'll, their argument is like, well, Christians behind some of the worst atrocities. If we didn't have religion in this world, we wouldn't have all these wars. I mean, you're kind of correct, but you're also kind of wrong because there are people who, who, who try to eradicate religion by killing people. You know, Pol Pot, General Mao, Joseph Stalin, and I said, like, these were, these were atheists who try to make their world void of religion. Right. So they committed atrocities. So I think that's a very dangerous place to go to to say, because you still believe in something, we got to cut you out. Um, and I, I've encountered people who who are entertaining that idea. So I'm always like, no, let's keep your hand open. Like there are expressions of faith and belief that people will really find their identity in. And for you to try to take that away, that's a very dangerous thing. And you're just you're just jumping from one fundamental to another. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, you're, you're right. Yeah, there, there have been a lot of wars and conflicts that happen at the hands of religion. But I think what we also see is religion used as a rubber stamp for, for human whatever. Yeah. Fill in the blank. Like if there's a you know, group of people that I want to hate or discriminate against, I can use religion as right. kind of the rubber stamp for that. Or even on the world stage, you know, like, well, if, if someone, we're seeing this play out right now, right? If someone bombs you or does something to you, then we feel like we have the right to, yeah. to bomb them back. And we can use religion as a kind of a rubber stamp for that if we want. But again, I think that's another space where that's the easy answer, right? The easy answer is if someone bombs us, we bomb them back. Yeah. And, and that has worked really well throughout history. So <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was supposed to be sarcastic. Um, yeah. But the, <laughs> like, to, to figure out another route seems so much harder and seems futile without us realizing, not to turn this into political stuff, but, but I think that to me that's just another example of sometimes religion, life, whatever, presents us with things that seem easy and clear-cut but but maybe the harder work is actually the the better work, and choosing that um, means means building bridges. Going back to what you were talking about earlier, and just that's what makes Jesus so compelling is that he did that because there were people wanting a Messiah to arise and to overthrow Rome in a violent way, mm-hmm. that's what Rome had been doing to them, and Jesus propped himself up as I'm the Messiah, like I'm I'm the true King you've been waiting for so long, but my way is not the way you're expecting it. Yeah, it's, it's going to lead to death. To see that happen, and that's why his warnings are, it's like, you, you can 
want somebody who's violent and you can follow that person, but you're going to leave yourself in destruction. That was his warning in Matthew 25. When people want to read that passage and think it's something, you know, in the distant future. And it could be applicable, I believe, but I don't think Jesus was talking about the end times. Or he was talking about, well, maybe he was talking about the end time, but, you know, the end time of their world because it, it was finally gone in 8070 um, with Rome sacking Jerusalem and all that. But that was the warning that he saw. He was trying to tell people, like, if, if you continue this path of violence, you're going to rot destruction upon yourself. Mm -hmm. So if you follow the way of my way, follow the way of love and compassion, and you work with people, then you won't meet the end of destruction. Um, but history tells that it didn't happen. Right. Um, however, there are remnants, we go with theology, and when there, there are remnants who stay behind and change things, and that's why we have the, the Christian world as we, as we know it. And then, of course, Christian turned itself into some form of nationalism and joined the same, <laughs> the same uh, concept. And I thought that's what was so compelling about Jesus. He was so good at subverting expectation. And that's something I'm always like coming back to anytime I read the gospel. I'm like, dang, you're so good at subverting. I love when my expectations are gone. And that's one thing I enjoy like horror movies and, and comedy. Like that, that's what makes horror and comedy work because it subverts your expectation. Like that's the only way that those two concepts work. Mm. You're one thing happen and then something doesn't happen. And like those things excite me. Like I'm always like I want. I have an expectation, and I, if you can throw me off, like that makes me feel really good. Uh, throw me off a really good joke. I didn't expect that to come. That's why it's so funny. Um, you know, it's just like I picked up what that's what Jesus was so good at is that they wanted him to be something. When he was like the scripture spoke about me all this time, you thought it meant one thing, but I'm telling you, it meant something different. Yeah, and people That's, are still doing that today. They still expect Jesus to come back and do what things. I mean, doesn't seem like he's going to do that. Yeah, and yeah, he he chooses the path of of love and compassion, of bridge building, and and ultimately of what leads to his death. So, yeah, yeah. that's a. That's a tough cross to to pick up and and carry to use Jesus's that, language. Exactly, so. you've said it. I. Yeah, well, that's probably a good space for us to to end today and. We can uh, we can come back to some of the theological stuff maybe another day. So, sure, so sure. thanks Timothy for for spending some time and sharing part of your story. And um, I appreciate you. Fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vine Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed getting to know Timothy and are encouraged and, and blessed by, by his story in some way. If you would like more information on the Vine, you can check out our website at thevinetemple.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Until next time, God bless.